Good evening, everyone. I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I'll be preaching the ninth in a ten-sermon series on the life and work of Jesus Christ. We've been preaching our way through that. And I've been out of the pulpit, I think, for almost seven weeks after kicking off this series. And I must say, I've thoroughly enjoyed our elders' preaching uh, since then. But I've also been looking forward to finishing up this series tonight and on Easter Sunday. Tonight, we stand together on holy ground as we see the Savior who dies. We expect a Savior to live, and others perhaps to die where there's a mighty Savior. And we're not quite ready for a mighty Savior who dies. It's just not what we expect. We call this day Good Friday. Good because of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross, but Good Friday was an awful day for Jesus Christ. He was arrested and tried illegally, declared innocent, but condemned anyway. He was mocked, whipped almost to death, and then crucified, the most horrible and humiliating way for a man to die. Tonight, I want us to together enter into his suffering for our salvation. I want us to feel it, not just to know it, but to feel it as best we can. So let's read our text from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. I don't think we can imagine the pain. Jesus did not sleep the night before his crucifixion. On Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he almost died from the spiritual and psychological pressure of bearing human sin. The thought of it, The pressure of it made him sweat blood. Early Friday morning, he was whipped raw and bloody. It wasn't yet 9 a.m., and the soldiers were prodding him to his crucifixion. Typically, the condemned prisoner was taken on the longest possible route through the city so that many people could see him and be warned. His crimes were written on a board and hung around his neck or carried ahead by a soldier. When they arrived at the cross, the sign was nailed over the victim's head for passers-by to read. 
Jesus collapsed under the weight of the cross he was forced to carry. The soldiers knew there was no point in beating him to get up and go on, so they drafted a pedestrian along the road. The Romans occupied the land of Israel and compelled civilians into service whenever they pleased. A soldier simply touched his spear to the shoulder of whomever he wanted, and that person became a temporary slave of Rome. The choice of the moment turned out to be a tourist from North Africa. His name was Simon, and he was probably in Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to see the holy city. He never imagined he would be humiliated into carrying a cross. The death march reached a place called Golgotha, outside the city wall where the local crucifixions were held. Apparently the shape of the hill looked like a human skull. That's how the place got its name, Golgotha, which means the skull. I shudder to think about what they did next, the indescribable pain of it all. That Jesus was laid on the cross on the ground. They bent his arms and drove spikes through the base of his hands. They bent his legs and nailed his feet onto the vertical piece of wood. Then the soldiers raised the cross and dropped it into a hole of the ground so that it would stand up straight. Imagine the pain. Hanging by nails, writhing to alleviate the agony somehow, rubbing his already raw and bloody back against the cross, fighting to get a breath, bleeding. There was a group of Jerusalem women who regularly brought spiked wine to give to the victims of crucifixion so that perhaps some of the pain might be dulled by the drug. Jesus declined. He chose to take the agony of crucifixion full force, the full brunt of the pain. He did that for you. Those nearby mocked and insulted him. The soldiers divided up his personal clothing, figuring the crucified man would not need them anymore. Getting the clothes was one of the perks of an executioner's job. Then they sat down to get comfortable and wait for his death. Imagine being so used to watching and waiting as men died such horrible and humiliating deaths. Golgotha was along a busy road with many passers-by. The cross was low enough to the ground that people could see and talk to Jesus as they walked by. They laughed and mocked him, saying that if he really were the Son of God, he should be able to free himself from the nails and come down off that cross. The religious leaders who were behind Jesus' crucifixion came to see for themselves. They taunted him, asking why God would not help him. Even the two criminals being crucified on either side of Jesus joined in the verbal attacks. Tortured and dying, they somehow mustered the strength to add to Jesus' insult and humiliation. Jesus did not defend himself. God the Father did not speak on behalf of his Son or deliver him. It looked like the critics were right. Cynics today have the same posture toward God. Why doesn't God perform a miracle if he could? How can a good God let innocent people suffer and die? Jesus 
endured these insults for you. The first nail was driven into Jesus at 9 a.m. He did not die until 3 p.m. Those had to be the six loneliest hours of his life. Have you sometimes wondered how or when you will die? You know you will. We all have a day to be born and a day to die. I've sometimes wondered how I will die. If I will die from a disease or an accident, if it will be sudden or prolonged, if it will be painful or easy, if I will be awake or asleep. And I realize that the choice will not be mine. But there's one thing I've always hoped for regarding my own death. I don't want to die alone. I'd rather not die alone. I want those who love me most to be by my side when that day comes. The most awful moment of Jesus' crucifixion came when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus was stained and polluted with our sin. He had never personally experienced sin before in his life. And now he was overwhelmed with sin at his death. God dumped on him the concentrated sum total of all sin. Every sin, every murder, every lust, every envy, every act of greed, every rape, every abuse, every theft, every profanity, every act of racism, every injustice against the poor, every sin of every person in every generation. You see, Jesus, who had never sinned, was made sin for us. God the Father loved his Son, but he turned away from him out of holy disdain for sin. That forsakenness happened because Jesus was actually bearing all the punishment for all our sins. Forsaken. Utterly forsaken. There are times that I have felt forsaken by God, and probably you have too. But we were never truly and fully forsaken by God, or we would not be here tonight. Jesus was on the cross. Something happened between the Father and the Son in those awful hours on the cross that we will never be able fully to know or understand. It was so deep so awful. Jesus was totally abandoned and completely alone. He cried out in desperation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father's heart was torn. Think of that too. Such a tearing apart of father and son where only perfect love had always been. We cannot imagine it. Jesus did that for you. When Matthew reported Jesus' death, he, he did not emotionalize or sensationalize it. He simply said that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. John was there, and he tells us exactly what Jesus cried out loud before he died. It is finished. It is finished. Then John writes, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
When Jesus cried out about being forsaken, I sensed there was despair in his voice. When he cried out, it is finished, I think there was victory in his voice. Jesus was like a marathon runner breaking the tape at the finish line. Exhausted, weak, totally drained, he said, I made it. I did it. It's over. The race is won. It is finished. Over what had he gained victory? Over sin and over death. We, we don't think enough about what this means for us. Sin is my breaking of God's law. My death results from my sin. And my eternal separation from God is my punishment. When Jesus died, he took my sin away and paid for it. He took my death away and gave me life instead. Jesus finished all of it. My sin, my death, my punishment. God went that far in caring for me and for you on that cross. He overruled evil and brought good from it. He took the greatest crime in history and made it his greatest victory. Praise God. The Bible says that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. That he came to seek and save the lost. He was the suffering savior, the sacrificial lamb, the only way to God, to salvation, to eternal life. He left heaven to do this. He became human to do this. He was born in Bethlehem to do this. He suffered and died to do this, to save sinners like us. He gave everything. At that final moment, all heaven watched in awe as the Son of God himself died. The Savior of the world died. He did it. He completed all the way what he came to do. It is finished. Jesus did that for you. At that moment, everything changed forever. The earth quaked. The temple curtain that kept everyone away from the holiest place where God's special presence abided, that curtain was ripped apart from top to bottom. And that means God did it. He did it from the top to the bottom and opened access to himself. Tombs burst open. Dead people came back to life again. The veteran Roman centurion, he had seen a lot of crucifixions, but he'd never seen anything like this. He knew that something amazing had happened. He was terrified. Hardcore soldier. He was terrified. And he blurted out, surely he was the son of God. It was over. Or so they thought. Unable to imagine that something bigger, better, and more amazing was less than three days away, the family and friends of Jesus scrambled to bury his body. Jesus died at 3 p.m. The law required burial before sunset. His family was too poor and too far from home to make the necessary burial arrangements. So a rich stranger offered his gravesite. Ironically, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that group of Jerusalem leaders who called for Jesus' crucifixion in the first place. His name was Joseph. He had come to believe in Jesus, 
and did not conspire with the others to kill him. Joseph approached Pilate, secured Jesus' body, and had him buried in a tomb carved out of the rock that he had recently bought for himself. That's what happened to Jesus on the day Christ died for you and for me. A dark day, but a day that would come to be called good. Good because of what was done that day for me and for you. On that day he died, the angels must have been struck speechless at the sacrifice of God and the stupidity of humanity. But perhaps they were even more amazed that the day Christ died became the day of one man's surprising salvation, a criminal. For the criminal crucified on the other side of Jesus, not the one who spoke first, but the one who spoke next, he called across Jesus to his fellow criminal on the other side, and he said, Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? It was a good question. Sooner or later, it becomes everyone's question. It becomes yours, and it becomes mine. Don't you fear God? We may live a lifetime thinking and behaving as if we have it all together and that we have nothing whatsoever to fear. But eventually, we all close in on our own death. And we are forced to face the reality of our own weakness, our own sinfulness, and the reality of God. And it is then, keenly aware of our inadequacy and God's holiness, that we are struck with the realization that it is God who judges and determines our eternal destiny, not us. It is God who sets the rules, not us. And that is no time for a clever argument. That is no time for a defense. It is a time to fear God and to wonder about one's eternal destiny. Of course, it's far better to resolve these matters before the moment of death comes, for none of us knows when that moment will be. For the condemned criminal on the cross, time was running out. Regardless of what he had said or done before, in the end, he did fear God. He realized that his judgment after death would be totally determined by God. It is a rational and righteous fear, I think that is necessary for anyone who seeks God's salvation. Like the convict on the far side who insulted Jesus, this man must have come to the cross with some advanced knowledge of who Jesus was and what he had done. He understood that Jesus was no criminal. He made the comparison. He looked at Jesus. He looked at himself. He realized that Jesus had done no wrong, that he was a completely righteous man. And he must have realized that Jesus was God's own son who was headed back home again to the paradise from which he had come. And so he believed. And so having feared God and having believed in Jesus, he decided to ask. He asked Jesus to save him when he arrived back in heaven. And what did Jesus say? He said yes. Of course he said yes because that's why he was there. He was being crucified for that very purpose, in order to save sinners and to open heaven 
to all who ask. All the ingredients are right there for this guilty, condemned, broken human being in his life gone completely wrong, completely off the rails. What were the ingredients? He knew his sin. He feared God. He believed Jesus. He asked for salvation. And here are all the ingredients for every one of us to review and to renew on this anniversary of the death of Jesus Christ. We must ask if we know our own sin. We must ask if we fear God. We must ask if we believe in Jesus. And we must ask if we seek his salvation. For those who do, Jesus' answer is still and always, yes. Yes, for those who do, this is the day of salvation. There's a strange irony to the 2018 calendar for this week. Today is called Good Friday because it marks the anniversary of Jesus' death. The day after tomorrow is Easter Sunday, and it falls this year on the day also called April Fool's Day. Same day, Easter and April Fool's. What I want to say to you is, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled like the criminal who rejected Jesus. Instead, like the criminal who received Jesus, call this the day of your salvation and call it good. Amen? Amen. Tonight, we, we have a